The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. So, this morning, we get to finish up this really long run-on sentence that Paul is putting out here to the Ephesians, this section of 3 through 15 of chapter 1 of what God has done for us. J.I. Packer, the, the recently glorified J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, describes the spiritual life as it's like being taught to drive. You don't ask yourself why the road should narrow or screw itself into a dog-leg wiggle just where it does, nor why the van should be parked where it is, nor why the driver in front should hug the crown of the road so lovingly. You simply try to see and do the right thing in an actual situation that presents itself. I thought that was a very fitting example of what spiritual life is. And as I was listening to this a few weeks ago, I was driving my way up to Glenwood to take pictures. And it was, the sun was rising in the east, and I was driving on this windy road through the trees, and it just made sense. It's like, yes, I'm driving around, and we as Christians are on this road toward the east, toward the rising sun, Jesus, the S-O, we're heading for the risen sun. And sometimes in life, it just turns around. Sometimes in life, we feel like we're just in a roundabout. Sometimes in life, things, it just doesn't seem like we're heading east. All of a sudden, we're heading west. Um, it just made a whole lot of sense. This is how spiritual life is. And over these last, this last month and a half, we've been looking at lots and lots of aspects of spiritual life. But as we end up today, and we're going to go over these aspects, and we end up today, my hope and my prayer and my desire for our church is that we would feel so secure, that we would know that we are so eternally secure, that we would live so completely eternally secure, there's no question in our lives about our security in Christ. We're going to do that by taking this, these two verses and breaking it into, guess the two parts, right? We're going to look at the first part in 13, like A, the first half of 13. That's going to be the first part. It's going to be about the gospel. And then the second part is going to be 13B through the end of verse 14. And it's going to be about the Spirit's sealing. So, to recap, over this last month and a half, God, we've learned has chosen us before the foundation of the world. God has predestined us. God has adopted us through Christ according to his purpose. God has redeemed us through his blood. God has lavished upon us grace. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. God has united all things in him. That is, angels and humans are all creations. He's united all things together in him. In that We've been made holy and blameless before Him. We've been adopted and blessed in the Beloved. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've obtained an inheritance. And last week we heard the first response. We have hope in our inheritance. And this week we're going to look at how God has sealed us in His Holy Spirit and has given us this down payment. So think about all these things that I just read off. All these things that God has done for us. He has chosen us. He has predestined us. He has adopted us. He has redeemed us. He's lavished upon us. He's made known to us. Like all these things are huge, huge things. And then last week we learned we have this hope. Like we respond to all these things God has done with hope. And then this week we get another one. Like all these things God has done for us, and we respond in hope. And then this week we get he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. 
and we respond again this week in what he has done to us, we respond in believing. So, God has done all this, and as Christians, we get to do this. We get to respond to it. So please look with me in chapter 1, Ephesians 1, in verse 13. I'm going to read verse 13 and 14 just again to kind of set my mind where it needs to be and all of our minds there. So verse 13. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So, verse 13. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. I need everybody to clear your throats really quick because you guys are going to say something here with me. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> We're going to look at these key words in verse 13, just focusing on the gospel and our salvation. The first word that comes up in verse 13 is when you heard. I want everybody to say the word akuo. Oh, come on. Let's say it louder than that. Say the word akuo. Akuo, yes. That is the word, that's the Greek word that's being here, used here for the, for the word heard. That's our English word for it. This word akuo means to be given or be endowed with the ability to hear. And the best example I've ever personally seen of this is when Gabriel, growing up, we're like, man, we don't think Gabriel can hear very well. Like, he doesn't have this faculty of hearing well. And we took him into Portland, and they put tubes in his ears, and we went to Sherry's afterwards, and he went in to wash his hands, and the little uh, paper towel dispenser went off, it was like, Wah! and he covers his ears, and he goes, wow, that was loud. And the man was just amazed, he's like, no, it's not that loud, but he's covering his ears. And then for days, he just kind of sat in rooms and like looked around, he's like, it's so loud, it's so loud, like I can hear all these things. Do you remember that, Gabriel? No. <laughs> you were given, you were endowed with the sense of hearing. That is what it means in the word akubo. You've been given something you didn't have before. Second word, verse 13. Truth. Everybody say, alatha. Alatha. Yeah, we're going to be Greek speakers here in a minute. This alatha is objective truth. This is truth. This is speaking towards truth that is outside of human experience and subjectivity. This is truth that cannot be denied. So think of gravity, right? You can stand on the edge of a treehouse and say, I don't believe gravity actually exists, and I'm going to walk out here onto the air, and you can take a step. But guess what? There's objective truth. Gravity exists. And what do you do? You hit the ground, right? It hurts. That is objective truth being played out against a subject like, I don't believe it's happening. I think you guys all can kind of look at our society and say, there is a whole lot of human thought and a whole lot of human experience, and I put little quotes on that, that are saying objective truth is not true but our subjective wants, our subjective desires, well, those things are true. But here, God's word is saying there is an objective truth that trumps, not to make a pun on the election or anything like that, that overrides uh, our subject experiences and feelings. So biology has objective truth. The gospel here specifically has objective truth that cannot be denied. So that's the second word, truth, like real, concrete, it cannot be denied truth, and it's specifically pertaining to God's revelation in his word, alatha. The next word is the word gospel in English, the word in Greek, are you ready for it? Euangelion. You say euangelion? Euangelion, there we go. This is like the good tidings, like Christmas story, like good tidings of comfort and joy. This is the good tidings in the preaching of Jesus Christ, specifically that he died on the cross for our sins, he suffered the death, and he was buried, he was resurrected from the grave, and 
he has procured salvation for man in the kingdom of God. That is the euangelion, the gospel. The next word, if you look with me, it is the gospel of your salvation. Everybody say sotaria. Sotaria. Yeah, sotaria. Saved. This is the saving from something. And with us, and it's in the gospel, it is being saved from the penalty, the power, the presence, and the pleasure of sin. Or being, we can also describe it as the deliverance from the molestation of an enemy. And as I went through that, and I, I was reading that this last couple of weeks, I'm like, okay, penalty, power, presence, I get all those. When I think of heaven, I think of like, okay, I'm going to be freed from the presence of sin. But I, I've never really spent a lot of time focusing on the pleasure of sin. We have a lot of young people in our church, and I just want to take a second and think about the pleasure of sin and what it really is. Several years ago, the church gave out the kids' book, uh, Theology, right? It has all the good pictures. Great book. If you don't have it, we'll get one. We'll find one for you. Um, it's a great book for kids. And when it comes to sin, it describes sin as like this thing that was enticing, but it was tainted. Does anybody remember what was in the glass of crystal water on a day that you were so very thirsty, like you were so desirous, this glass of, of water sitting there. What was in it? Does anybody remember? Bird poop, right? So as you would come up, like say it's a 90 degree day, and you're like, oh, I'm so thirsty, and there's your water cup sitting on the porch, and you're like, oh man, it looks so good. It looks so good, and you walk up to it. Say you look inside and you see a beetle, right? Personally, I'd be like, ah, see a beetle, and I would still drink it because I can get rid of the beetle. But imagine like that thing being so good looking from a distance, and you walk up, and the bird has pooped in. There ain't no pulling that out. Like the whole thing is tainted. There is a desire, there is a want, there is a pleasure in what looks like a really, really refreshing drink in sin. Sin has this desire. It looks so good from afar. But when you actually stop and look into it, it's completely tainted. That is like being freed from the pleasure is to be able to look at something and go, that is so disgusting. That sin that I used to enjoy, that sin that I, I used to just drive after, I used to work for it, I used to want it so bad that I would spend my time and my energy for it. Now it just looks so disgusting. That is what it is to be free from the pleasure of sin. And I'm sure many older saints in the faith, now teenagers, you can be an older saint in the faith, you can be walking with the Lord from a very young age and have a decade by the time you've left your house. You can be an older saint in the faith, right? You can have this experience and you can be able to look back at your childhood and go, man, there were things as a kid I just wanted and it was just sinful within me. And, and now I look back and I have this ability to look back and go, that was so disgusting. Like I, I challenge you youth to, to think about things that you used to and everybody, to think about things that you used to strive after and want. And now you can look at it and go, man, that's disgusting. That was disgusting. That is to be free from the pleasure of sin. The last word we're going to look at here is believe. So when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. So the last word, pestuio. Pestuio. The word pestuio, for all you really smart CC literary students, or non-CC literary students, this is a verb form of the word pistis. So the verb form meaning the action form of the word faith. So pistis is that word in Greek for faith. This is the action of putting into action faith. Or are you choosing in the gospel, the choosing to believe it or to place your confidence in it. 
So if we were to rewrite this, or re we were to say this in the language of Jason, or how I've worked this out today, I would say that you all, having been endowed by God with the faculty of hearing the good message of objective truth of God's righteousness, being that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, and was buried in the grave, and resurrected from the dead, and ascended into heaven, in which he has made the way for us to be saved from the penalty, power, presence, and pleasures of sin. Okay, God has done all that. We place our confidence in him. We respond to God by placing our confidence and our hope and our desires in him. So as this fits into this whole section of Ephesians, there's so much that God has done for us. Seth even started to mention it this morning, or he was mentioning it this morning. Like, his thoughts towards us are so much greater than we could ever imagine on ourselves. But we can think of a handful on ourselves, but God's is so immeasurably more. Like, God has done, in that same sense, so much more for all of us that we can possibly imagine. We get to respond to Him. We get to respond to Him by placing our confidence in Him, and placing our confidence that the Word of God is true, and placing our hope in Christ Jesus. This plays out mightily when we think of kind of that old question that is come up in community groups of if we're predestined, if we're if we're um, chosen, why? Like if God knows this person's going to be saved, I've chosen him, I've predestined him, why do I need to evangelize? If it's just going to happen, why does it have to happen? Well, because we're the spirit-filled Christians, and there's this need for this person to be endowed with hearing. So think of this with me for a second. There's a need for, we're going to place an imaginary person here in front of the, the pulpit here. There's a, uh, and we're going to call him Bob. This person, Bob, here needs to be endowed with the ability to hear. And so we as spiritual Christians, we have the spirit dwelling inside us. It's coming in a minute. Uh, we come up to Bob, our imaginary person here, and we start sharing the gospel with them. We start telling them about how Christ has died for them and how they are in sin and they need to be forgiven and accept that forgiveness. And as we're speaking to imaginary Bob, the Spirit of God is present. Like, I've been teaching my kids, where is God? God is everywhere. But specifically, He's dwelling inside us. And so the Spirit of God is present to Bob here, the imaginary person, and the Spirit of God gives to Bob this ability to hear the message that we're trying to communicate to him. And then God, giving him that ability to hear, then pours into him a new heart and a new life, and he then can respond to the message that we're sharing. But unless we go and share, people aren't hearing the message. People aren't being given that ability to believe. So why do we evangelize if we breathe, if we believe in a predestiny? It's because God has chosen to partner us with him to say, this is, this is how I work for this. You guys, I've done all this. You guys go and talk to him, and I'll use you in Bob's life to open up his ears, to give him a new heart, and then he'll respond to it. So we get this beautiful thing in the gospel. We get this beautiful opportunity to speak and to share and to partner with God in the gospel. And that is, I think, something huge that comes into the book of Ephesians here. God is saying, I've done all of this. And you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. Now we're going to move into, so that was really quick, kind of through the first part of today. We're in uh, the gospel, the first part of verse 13. We're going to spend a, quite a bit of time on this second part. You being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. 
guys can think of um, your election ballot or a piece of mail that you just recently put in the mail, when you want to seal that up, there's a little glue strip, right? And a lot of times you can just put a little, wa a little water on it and seal it up. You know, you might lick it and seal it up. That seal is, that's a seal. And we all think of a seal like that. Um, and the time that is being written here, it was more of a scroll with a signet ring that wax would be poured onto it and it would be sealed. That, that wax would dry and it would say, hey, this is the sealing of the scroll. And if anybody's read Revelation recently, uh, there are seven seals in chapter six, right, that get broken. And that is the opening of that, that scroll. So boom, 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 these seals break and the letter can then be, the scroll can then be opened. That is what we first think of when we think of the word seal. But the Bible uses the word seal in a few more ways. Uh, there are, and we're going to look at three ways today. The first way, if you would look, you don't need to turn there, is we find in Romans 4, verse 11, and 1 Corinthians 9, verse 2. In Romans, Paul is saying to the Jews that the sign of circumcision was the seal of their, their belonging to God. That was something God gave them to seal them. And in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 2, the church, Paul is saying, the church is the seal of Paul's apostleship in the Lord. And so the first way we're going to look at the sealing of the Holy Spirit is as a mark of authenticity. The second way we're going to look at it comes from Matthew 27, verse 66 in Revelation 20. Jesus' tomb is sealed and secured, and the bottomless pit in Revelation is sealed. And so the second way we're going to look at the sealing of the Holy Spirit is that we are being shut up and locked up and secured in the Lord. So that is more like what you would think of a, a school being sealed, it's locked up. The third way we're going to look at the sealing of the Holy Spirit is from Revelation 7, and it, you can also find it in Ezekiel chapter 9. And this is the protecting from outside harm or making secure those in Ezekiel who are grieving over the sins of Israel. And this is a protecting from outside forces. So the three ways we're going to look at the sealing of the Holy Spirit is the mark of authenticity, to be shut up and locked up in Christ, and protecting from outside harm. So, how does God, with the, with the promised Holy Spirit, seal us? That's the question at the moment. First way, please turn with me to Acts chapter 10. He is our mark of authenticity. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is moving around the countryside. Peter's moving around the countryside. And he is, um, he's doing these different things. He ends up in Joppa. And in another town, there is a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And Cornelius is praying to God, and God sends an angel to Cornelius. And Cornelius is like, what do you want me to do? And God is saying, I want you to send to Joppa, call for Peter. He's in the house, assigned to the tanner. Call him. He's got a message for you. And then Peter... Coincidentally, in a couple days, or in that same time period, Peter is praying to God, and in that prayer, he gets this vision of the sheep being let down. You guys know this story. The sheep's being let down. God says, kill and eat all these unclean animals. Peter's like, no, I've never killed. I've never eaten that. Um, nothing. I'm not going to defile myself. God says, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. What I have made holy, don't make it unholy. Don't, uh, what I've sanctified, don't make Holy. So this goes back and forth, and as the, that vision ends, there's a knock on Simon the Tanner's door. Peter comes down, and they're like, hey, yeah, our boss got this vision of an angel, and that angel told us to come find you, and here you are. Would you please come and share some message with us that you have? And Peter's like, okay. And these other Jews come with him, who are also Christians, and they get to Cornelius' house. And Peter walks in, and in chapter 10 of Acts, Peter opens his mouth and he says, Truly I understand 
that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And Peter starts preaching. So we have traveling Peter, now we have preaching Peter, and Peter is preaching this message to this household of Cornelius. And he gets down to the end, and if you look down to verse 43, to him, Peter says, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter. While he, Peter, was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come to Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So as Peter is preaching, as Peter is sharing the gospel to them, and he declares this, and it's when you believe in his name for the forgiveness of sins, that all of these people are like, yes, I get it. My ears have been opened. And the Holy Spirit falls down on them, and they start showing signs that they are born again. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. As Peter then takes this story, takes this account of what happened, he goes back to Jerusalem. And all of the higher-ups in the church at that point, they're like, why did you speak? Why did you even go to the house of a Gentile? And Peter relays the whole account to him, and they go, and he says to him, and we saw the Holy Spirit fall on these Gentiles. And that statement is what the whole church goes for then. God has opened salvation to the Gentiles. Because the Holy Spirit has come upon these people, the church has grown to not just Jews, not just Samaritans, but now it's grown to the whole world can be saved. As an authenticating mark, the Holy Spirit sealed those Gentiles. My question then is as we look at this today, as we're in Ephesians and we see that the first way God sets his seal upon us is authenticity, my question for us today is, is there evidence of growth in the Holy Spirit in our lives? Um, in Acts, in some churches, in Acts 10 right there, they were speaking in tongues. In some churches, they would say that you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Scripture doesn't say you have to speak in tongues to be saved, but there will be people, well-meaning people, who say you have to speak in tongues. That's not the authenticity. That's not the authenticating mark. Evidence of the Holy Spirit is love. Evidence of the Holy Spirit is joy. Evidence of the Holy Spirit is peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are evidences of the Holy Spirit. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So as you can sit here, you can think of those types of things, those, those fruits of the Spirit. You can ask your husband, you can ask your wife, you can ask your kids, kids, am I growing in the Holy Spirit? Am I growing in gentleness? Am I growing in kindness? Am I growing in love? But I think better than asking somebody else, I want you to just take a moment and I want you to ask God to authenticate to yourself while I read 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to John. I would encourage everybody to read the book of 1 John this week. It's going to come up a couple times. Um, the book of 1 John is really a, a book that as you read through it, God will either authenticate that these things in John is true in your heart and life, that yes, these are fruits and evidences and these are what you believe, or the Spirit of God will convict that these things are not so. And as we, as the church, we want to be, we want to be authenticated, we want the Spirit of God to authenticate in our lives that these things are true. So I'm going to read 1 John Chapter 4, verse 7 through 21. And I just want you to just listen. Um, you can close your eyes for a second, but don't fall asleep. Um, you can close your eyes and just listen for a second and ask God if this is true. 
true in your life. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and that he, he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. As that's being read, does the witness of the Holy Spirit of God witness to your heart that these things are true, that love is growing, that love is abounding in your life? If it is, I want to say praise God. If, as that's being read, and you go, no, that's not. Take the time to pray. Take the time to seek the Lord. Take the time to ask a brother or sister to say, wow, I need, I need to either uh, confess something, I need to work through something, please work with me through this. Uh, it should be, it should be as a church that we can look around and we can go, man, that person is growing in love. That person is growing in love. And I would say, as I look around in our church, the one thing that I would say has been such a tangible mark is love within the body. Like, that is such a tangible thing within our church. But it should always be growing. It should always be continuing. Are we continuing? Just taking that moment, taking some time to ask, God, am I growing in this? The second way and the second question, we're going to ask the same thing again. How does God, with his promised Holy Spirit, seal us then? He seals us up, and he locks us in. John Piper, in commenting on this verse, said, God is so passionately committed to his own glory that he will not leave it in my power to make it to heaven on my life. God is so passionate about his own glory, he won't leave it up to me to get to heaven. I look at that, I hear that, and I go, thank you, God. <laughs> I thank God that he can look and say, I, I've chosen you, I'm making sure you're going to make it. And in verse 6, verse 11, and uh, verse 14 in Ephesians, we see these things. All these things God has done to the praise of his glorious grace. He does all these things to the praise of his glory. And it ends, he does all this so that we might acquire possession of our inheritance to the praise of his glory. Like that is God's focus. It's to the praise of his glory that he does all of this in our salvation, all of this in our life, all of this 
throughout our life. He locks us up. Earlier, I gave you Romans 11 and um, I Romans 11. I gave you Matthew 27 and Revelation 20. Um, I'm going to flip to Revelation 20. I think this is just wonderful. And um, if you want to flip to Revelation and put your finger in it or put a mark in it, we're going to come back to Revelation a few times. Um, Revelation 20. This thing happens um, in this vision that God uh, that God is giving to John the Revelator, and um, it's just amazing. So I'm going to read it. Then I saw Revelation chapter chapter 20 verse one. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Same thing. He bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the pit and he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Revelation 20, God gives John this vision of an angel coming to the devil and taking him and casting him into a pit and sealing him up. We as humans are made lower than the angels, we're told in the Bible. We're lower than the angels. God is infinitely greater than the angels. So here in Revelation 20, we get this little picture of an angel who's above us, but below God, taking the devil, who is created above us, but below God, and casting him and sealing him up to where he can't, the devil can't get out of his pit. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're told that God seals us with his Holy Spirit. So think of that like power struggle as we think of angels and demons, and we go, wow, that's pretty amazing what took place. Greater than that is infinitely powerful God, sealing infinitely small little us. So there's this battle, angels and demons, and the angel can seal up and keep the devil there. God Almighty seals us with His Holy Spirit. How much greater is that of sealing us and keeping us in? In Romans 11, it says that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We, we can't have our calling. We can't have our salvation um, removed from us. But John, in 1 John, it comes up that why... Why do these people who used to walk with the church now walk away? Like that question comes up. What about people who have walked with the Lord, who have gone to church, who have spent time in prayer? Why are they completely denying the faith? And John says in 1 John that these people's apostasy is a sign that they were never actually truly converted. So as we think of all this, and we go back to that first point, like authenticate me, God, am I walking in truth, am I growing in love? Because I don't want to be, and I don't want anybody in our church to be one that shows fruit that they were actually unconverted. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to come to a day where you just go, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. Take the time now to make sure that that authenticating mark of the Holy Spirit is in our life. Because God, if He has done it, is infinitely greater than us, and he will, to the praise of his glory, bring us along. So, saint, if you trust in Jesus, and you confess him as your Lord and Savior, you are secure. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's going to take us into the third way that God seals us up in His Holy Spirit is that He protects us from outside evil forces. Um, and I'm going to... I've been battling with this point on how I want to share all this um, because I believe that angels are real. I believe that demons are real. I believe the devil is real. I believe that there are battles that take place and people have voices in their heads and I believe that Mental illness is a lot more spiritual than it is physical or chemical. I believe these things. 
But we have been given that objective truth. And that objective truth sets us free. And there is freedom that can be had and that is had in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we look to this third way, that God protects us in His Holy Spirit, by the sealing of His Holy Spirit, um, from outside evil forces. I want to say that. I believe that takes place. I also want to say that those things can take place to even a sinless human being because Eve was sinless in the garden when the serpent spoke a lie. He is the father of lies. He spoke a lie and he was able to then corrupt all creation. So even if we go, man, I'm a strong Christian, man, I've got this, I can do this, I'm, I'm not going to be oppressed, I'm not going to be uh, messed with by a demon, like even a sinless human being fell because of lies. We can all, right? I think we all do have lies that we believe, but we just don't know what they are all the time because they're so prevalent. Um, so I'm going to caveat all of that. God protects us from outside evil forces. Get their finger in Revelation. We'll start, we're going to start in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I need to see that there. Chapter 1, verse 9. John says, the Apostle John says, I, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God. John says, I am your brother and your partner in the tribulation. Paul, I'm going to scoot over here to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, we know that you know all things and do not need anyone 
to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will all be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. The Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We have trials, we have persecutions, we have pain, we have sorrow, we have death, we have spiritual attack, we have hurt, we have depressions, we have heartbreaks, we have disappointments in this life. We are not walking on clouds, playing harps, eating gumdrops and lollipops, riding on unicorns across rainbow bridges. Life is hard. And as I, as I go through these things, um, I, don't want to, I don't want to set up a, a precedent. I don't want to be presumptuous and preach a pre, or preach an amillennialist like, hey, the, the, the tribulation is now. I'm not saying that. I'm saying what the Bible says, that in this life, we have tribulation. In this life, we do get persecuted. In this life, we are afflicted. Life is hard. And as Christians, young men and women, I would, uh, Matthew, my boy is looking for a second. In life, as Christians, like, this is the most hellish it's ever going to be for you. If you are a Christian, this right now that we live in is the most hellish life will ever be. This is the worst it will ever be. And it is hard. And it is difficult. And life feels like a roundabout. Going back to that driving analogy. Like, sometimes you just spin circles. Some days it's nice. But life is hard. For an unbeliever... This life is the best it's ever going to be. For someone who is not walking with the Lord, who, is going, who ends up in hell, like this life that we look at and we go, this is the worst, that this is their best. So as we look at the life, we acknowledge, we don't, we don't hold this like, hey, wealth and prosperity, gospel, everything's going to be just hunky-dory, like, we could live in a van down by the river and still be happy Christians. Like, it could just be absolutely terrible for us. Life can absolutely just kick us down and keep kicking us, and it would be okay because this is the worst it's ever going to be because Jesus has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. So now, as I said, we're going to spend some time in Revelation. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 7. And I'm going to lay a little groundwork. So I don't think it's any... Um, Surprise that Revelation, the book, is my favorite book. When I'm feeling down and I want to encourage, I read the book of Revelation. When I'm feeling happy and I want to just be like, hey, this is great, I read the book of Revelation. When I'm looking for something, like I just want to be blessed, like I will read the book of Revelation. It is such an encouraging book to read and to go, God, what do you have for us? In Revelation chapter 7, there is the use of the word sealed. And it's used a couple of times. If you look here at the at verse 5, it lists these people, these sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. And it goes through Reuben and Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Iskar, Zedim, and Joseph. And then 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, regardless, regardless of your eschatological view on whether or not you're a preacher, a dispensational preacher, premillennialist, or you're a post-trip amillennialist, it doesn't matter. The book of Revelation is still scripture, and we can look at it and we can glean from it. And as I have listened and I've, I've studied the different views, they all preach to their congregation essentially the same thing. So as a, as a dispensational preacher and premillennialist would preach through chapter 7, he would come to this and he would say, look, he would say that the church is gone, but then he would say, but church, look at this, and he would preach to his congregation about lives and trials and the things that we go through in life. 
The same thing with a post-trip amillennialist. He'll preach through and he'll say, like, look, this is what it's saying. And no, but in church, as we live in trials and persecutions and, and, and struggles, look at what is taking place here. Like these, the preaching of the book of Revelation comes together regardless of your view. That's what I want to. That's what I want to share in this. Is that there are those who are going through tribulation. The, the tribulation in Revelation, the great tribulation, starts in chapter six and it's carried through chapter eighteen. Like it's describing this time when God is pouring out His just wrath on creation. And then in chapter seven, there's this break. And it says, now, there are those who I am sealing through this all. There are those that I am holding and protecting through this all. And these 144,000 in the book of Revelation are set in direct contrast to those who are marked by the beast. So as, we, as you read the book of Revelation, there's the mark of the beast that, who worship the idol, the image of the beast. They get the 666 on their forehead or their hand. They are the opposite of the 144,000. Those who say, no, I'm going to worship God. I'm not going to take this mark. I'm going to live the way God wants me to live. I'm going to be different than the people who dwell on so, Revelation through 6 through 16, there's 144,000 who worship God and honor God and live for God, and, and they're called those who dwell in heaven. And then there's the rest of mankind who dwell on earth, who live for the things of the earth, who have the woes of Revelation pronounced on them, who look at Babylon in chapter 18 and they're just weeping. They're like, oh, the world system is burning. They're the opposite of those who are sealed to life. We are those who look at this life and go, we're not living for this life. We're not living um, for this world's system. The application of 144,000 is that in this life, we have tribulation. We suffer. We hurt, but we take heart because Christ has overcome the world. He has secured a way for us to dwell with Him. He puts within us His Holy Spirit, that third person of the Godhead who is fully God. He places Him inside us. That is why there is neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the things present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor postponed plans to build a new home, nor inability to find a job, neither flooding of work projects or disappointments of current job responsibilities. There's no coronavirus. There's no social distancing. There's no loneliness in life. There's no overstaying of house guests. There's no alterations to your current family schedule. There's no fear. There's no anxiety or seemingly unanswered prayers that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Okay, thank you. Satan and his forces cannot defeat us. The world system cannot defeat us. And I know many of us are are grieving. I know many of us are disappointed. We're saddened by the results of the election. And I'm going to throw one more in there. There's no Democratic president. There's no liberal court. There's no supermajority of one political system or other. There's no Republican Senate that can keep us from the love of God. Like, it's not about this life. And on the heels of the election, I think that's just something that we need to just solidify in our hearts right now, church, that this election does not defeat us. We are in Christ. And he doesn't, we can't be separated because of what took place. We are the most blessed church. 
So our inheritance, moving on to finish out this verse, our inheritance is, yes, heaven. It is, yes, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem coming down from God. It is, yes, this beautiful garden with the tree of life and the water uh, flowing from the land. There is, yes, this beautiful thing that we look forward to, but it is so, so, so much more. And before Seth preached last week, I had already written down, our inheritance is that we get God. Does everybody remember that from last week? We get God. Everybody say that. We get God. That is what we get. We get Jesus. Our inheritance is Jesus, the visible, tangible presence of God Almighty, so that we know that we're going to get that. God says, here, I'm giving you myself now. Like we know, so that we know we're going to get God in the future, we get his Holy Spirit now. That is our earnest payment. That is our down payment, right? For those who have just bought new houses, our down payment, our 20% of the mortgaged life eternal that we mortgage through our sins is the down payment of the Holy Spirit now. That Holy Spirit living, dwelling inside you. Think of the Israelites. So last week, Seth was saying, like, think of the Israelites going through the Red Sea. I want you to take those Israelites now through the Red Sea, through to the Jordan. They're getting ready to cross into the Promised Land. And Moses said, is lining out, when you get over there, Israelites, take your inheritance of the land. And by the size of your tribe, take your inheritance. So Judah gets this big piece, and Benjamin gets this little piece. But what about the Levites? Does anybody remember what the Levites got? The Levites didn't get the land. They got the responsibility, they got the opportunity to minister in the tabernacle. The Israelites, this is inheritance, I'm sorry, the Levites' inheritance was the inheritance of the Lord. They were the priests of God. And again, in Revelation chapter 1, he has made us a kingdom. Priests to his God. Jesus has made us as the church a kingdom. We are priests to God. Our inheritance, like the Israelites going into the promised land, we're like the Levites. We're not living for this land. It's not a physical location that we're saying, this is what I get for eternity. It's that we get God. We are priests of God. We get to live and dwell forever with God. We want to get back to Eden. Our desire is to get back to this Eden idea. Um, but we don't want Eden as it was with a serpent in it. We want the new Jerusalem where it is the sun shining forever. So I hope, I hope that as we've gone through this, that God has been able to help you feel secure and to know that you are secure and to go out and live life as eternally secure in Him. The world will crash around us. Our road that we're driving on towards the risen Son Jesus in the East will kick back and will suddenly feel like we're traveling in the wrong direction, or we'll feel like we're going around in circles, or we'll feel like we've gone into the darkest of valleys in our path towards eternity. But he wants us to be so secure in his love that he has chosen us, he has predestined us, he has redeemed us, he has given us his given us a now, and he's coming back for us, and in the full time, we will get all of him. We will get God to the praise of his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the reality, the knowledge, the, the hope that you are our everything. You are what we long for. You are what we need. You are the deepest of our desires. You are the most earnest of all of our wants. God, I pray that that would sink into us and that your Holy
Holy Spirit, God, would rise up in us, God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us, that you would flood over us as a church, that you would bubble up within us as believers, your Holy Spirit, so that we would know, one, that we are secure in you, and two, that there is neither, there's nothing that can separate us from you, and that we know and we live to the praise of your glory, God. And I pray that you would bless Pillar Bible Fellowship with this. In Jesus' name. for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.